you is the assignment that's due today. So I know a couple people have already submitted it up on D2L. You do have until 6 o'clock tomorrow morning before it's marked late. So if you're submitting it up on D2L, if you're bringing me a copy, obviously I need it today uh, before we go. Uh, so I'll take, and then I'll, look at the, I'll take a look at those. Again with the article reviews, because someone had asked about that, I grade, I grade all three if you do them, but I take your two highest grades. So if you need to skip one because you're slammed with other classes at this point, you can skip doing one and do the other one, and that's perfectly fine. I do note that when you skip it, you get a zero. And then when I grade the third one, then I drop your lowest grade. So if you do skip one for some reason, if you miss the first one or if you miss the second one, it's hurting your grade temporarily. But at the end, it will go away when I drop those. So that's the one that's due today. If you're submitting it up on D2L, you'll have until 6 o'clock tomorrow. And then coming up uh, in just a couple weeks, we will have the homework three, which I gave out and I promised you a copy, didn't I? I think everybody else, I think I gave that out at the exam so everybody else will have it. But that's number three. Yep. So homework number three, do the first of November as we work our way through this unit. And then the third exam will be the week later on the Thursday, which would be the 8th. And I think I changed those dates and have them correct. Uh, correct now. I'm still working on getting the review quizzes up. I should have those up hopefully by the end of the week but I know most people won't want to look at them right before the exam any, in, anyway. But those will be up. Those will be extra credit just as the previous one. So I do recommend going through them because they use the same question banks that go for the exams. So you can, play, you can take them as many times as you want. Whatever your last score is, you can get up to one point for each, each, of, the qui each of the quizzes. So you can get up to three extra credit points. So definitely recommend taking a look at those as soon as I get them up later this week. All right, questions. Okay, well, picture of the day for today then. Uh, this is the Cherenkov telescope uh, taken at sunset there. This is a gamma ray telescope on the surface of the Earth. Of course, I just told, we talked about telescopes a little while ago, and I told you that's impossible. You can't observe gamma rays from the surface of the Earth because they don't penetrate the atmosphere. Well, that's true. Gamma rays do not penetrate the atmosphere. Sorry. But what they do do is they strike particles in the, in the atmosphere and create a shower of particles that can give off light that could then be detected. So what the Cherenkov telescope will do is not detect the gamma rays directly, but will indirectly detect the showers of particles that they create and they give off all of this light. And then it's able to work its way backwards. It's able to use that information from all that light that comes from those gamma ray strikings on the upper part of our atmosphere and is then able to work out when the gamma ray hit, what direction it came from, what kind of energy it was. So it works backwards. So it's one of those things that it's not directly observing the gamma rays, but it is able to detect them from the surface of the Earth, which is an advantage. Right? When something goes wrong with a telescope and it's on the surface of the Earth, you can go fix it. As we've had issues with Hubble recently with the gyroscopes, and they start to go bad and it's up in space, there's not much you can do. You can't get, get out there as easily to be able to repair things. So being able to observe things like gamma rays from the surface of the Earth is a great advantage to astronomers to be able to study them. 
And this is a relatively new telescope just coming online. But there will be more telescopes uh, like this are planned um, in the northern and the southern hemisphere to be able to look at all of these events together and then be able to put the telescopes together to be able to really look at things in gamma rays from the surface of the Earth. All right, questions? Nope, nope, nope. All right. Well, I have one more sheet I wanted to give you because um, it was brought to my attention after that I forgot that I had, when I gave, started doing the lecture on the HR diagram and I kept telling you this was going to be on the, this would be on the exam, uh, that the slides that I put up are ones that I use to record. Meaning that normally I would record a video and I'd be drawing the HR diagram, but when I did them for here, it's awkward to try to draw things or try to go back and forth between the boards, so I had just put another HR diagram up there. So if you printed out the slides, you did not have one, so I have a copy to give you. Uh, it does say quiz four. It's not a quiz. I'm just giving you the answers. I've done this as a quiz in the past. But this is something that will be pretty much guaranteed to be one of the questions for the exam. So you do what? So good thing to do, review it. It's also a good idea. You know, if you're using the key point sheets, it would not be a bad thing for you to draw this on there. That way you'd have it right there because that'll this will pretty much be one of your essays for the, for the next, for exam three. So I'm giving you one here, kind of exactly what I drew in. I don't guarantee the question will be exactly the same. I might cut out some of it. I think I got everybody there. I might cut out something, but in general, being able to identify these parts, or I may not ask you all of the parts, I may just ask a few of them, depending on how I put the question together. But I recommend, again, if you're going to use, and I recommend using those key point sheets, go on, they're all up there for, for exam three now. So you can go print those out, and you could, you know, re-sketch this. You can't bring this sheet with you, but you can re-sketch this onto those sheets. That way you've drawn it yourself, and then have that, and you now that's one of the essays that you know you're going to get. So I wanted to make sure I gave you, gave you a copy of that so you had it before we uh, went on a little bit further today. So, questions? Otherwise, we are going to try to finish, uh, we will finish, should finish up 19 today. Uh, we had just gone through the first part of 19, which was looking at parallax as one way of measuring distances. So now we're going to move on to other ways because parallax, as you recall, didn't work out that far. Most of the satellites, even the Hipparchos satellite, which is the one that's been up there for a while, got out to a few hundred parsecs. Triple that for number of light years. So if you're going to 300 parsecs, you're getting out to about 1,000 light years. That's still a small fraction of the distance in our galaxy. The Gaia satellite is going to do a lot better and is actually going to give us, uh, get us a good chunk of the way through our galaxy, but it's still a small fraction. We're just within our you know, portion of the galaxy. We really have to look out a lot further when we want to try to measure distances to other galaxies are way beyond anything we can possibly do with any kind of parallax just because our baseline, our movement is just so small. It might be 180 million miles from one side to another of the Earth's orbit, from being on one side to being on the other side. And that sounds tremendous. But when you're going to things, when you're talking about things like light years, 
and a light year is 10 trillion kilometers? You know, that's, that's nothing. And then we're starting to talk about hundreds and thousands. And to galaxies, we're talking millions of light years. So this little tiny baseline shift that we have for the Earth, which is about as big as we can do for parallax, is just not enough. So we have to start looking at other methods. And one of those is using variable stars. Variable stars are stars that change in brightness. They are variable. They're not the same brightness all the time. And there can be a number of reasons for these. But what you might see is just looking at a, uh, the light brightness. If you measure the brightness, they can actually change very significantly. Get, significant, get fainter, get brighter again, get fainter, get brighter again with a regular period. So these are, can be important if we can find any kind of relationships between the, the variability and learning about how bright they are. That's something that is really important. But first of all, I wanted to mention a couple different types of variables. There are eclipsing variables. Eclipsing variables do what they say. They eclipse each other. So stars pass in front of another one. And if you have two stars normally, you're going to have a certain amount of brightness. If one star passes in front of the other, all of a sudden you're getting less light. It's going to get fainter. And then it's going to move out and it's going to get brighter again. So the brightness will change in a regular pattern. One star passes in front of the other, now you're going to be seeing less light because one star is blocking out the light of the other. Of the other. So those are one example of variables. The ones that are most important for us are what we call the intrinsic variables. These are stars that are truly changing in brightness all by themselves. Generally what it means is that they're actually pulsating. They're unstable. And they grow in size and they shrink in size. They grow, they get bigger and brighter, and then they shrink and they'll get uh, hotter but fainter. So they'll ch actually physically change in size. Our sun doesn't do this. right? Our sun is pretty much stable. It's got that balance between pressure and gravity. There are some situations, especially for large stars, where they become unstable and they can get into a series of pulsations. And this is an example, the light curve that I'm showing you here, the curve of the, the change in the brightness, shows for one of these intrinsic variables. And in fact, this is uh, one of the what we call the Cepheid variables that we'll look at on the next slide. They're really important ones. These are ones that are tremendous stars in size, extremely bright, and that means we can see them even when they're far away. So these are ones that are really important to us, but I didn't want to just limit that that's the only kind of variable. There are eclipsing variables. Uh, some of these you can actually see with your eye. Uh, the star Algol in Perseus, known as the demon star. Well, it was the demon, became known as the demon star because it changed brightness. You could see it a certain brightness sometimes. Other times you'd look at it, it was a lot fainter. It's an, it's an example of an eclipsing binary that you can actually note with your eye. If you know when it's going to be at the minimum, you can actually go look for it and you can see the star will be at one brightness and a little while later it'll be significantly change that brightness. So some of them are actually visible. For the most of these, the changes are small enough that you need telescopes to be able to see them. The third type is, we'll come back to later on, but these are cataclysmic variables. And as you might guess by the name, there's something cataclysmic going on with them. These can change in brightness by a lot. 
not just a little bit of a change. They might just, you know, a couple times brighter or a couple times. These things can get 10, 50, 100 times brighter. There's something really unusual going on with them, and we'll talk about them later on. Uh, they can, to some extent, help us with distances, but that actually depends on what type, uh, what's actually, what, is, what type of cataclysmic variable they are. The light curve, again, I've just mentioned just to find what that is. The light curve simply means that it's the change in brightness. So all each of those dots is one measurement of the brightness of the star. And there's a very distinct pattern. The star gets fainter, 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 and then all of a sudden it gets brighter, and then it gets fainter, fainter again. And it does that with a relatively regular period and not all that long. Uh, the period for this one is what? About, uh, just give me the phase. Cepheid variables can range from about a day to go from dim to fa from faintest or brightest to brightest again. Uh, they can run up to hundreds of days. So there's pretty big, pretty big range in what they can do, but they're not things that take years and years and years to be able to find or to identify. Some of them can be relatively short. And they're the ones that are very important. Uh, they're named after the first of those to be discovered, which was Delta Cephei. Uh, Cephei refers to the constellation of Cepheus. The Delta, what astronomers do is when they name the, the first stars, they did the brightest stars in the constellation. The brightest one was the Alpha Star, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and so on through the Greek alphabet, so through 24, the first 24 stars, brightest stars in each constellation could be identified this. So this is a, the fourth brightest star in the constellation of Cepheus. So it's one of those that you can see with the naked eye, but isn't necessarily a standout, really super bright star. We see them vary in brightness with periods of just a few days, 50, maybe up to 100 days. That itself isn't important, but what is important it, what, is what was found in 1908 by Henrietta Leavitt when she was looking at these Cepheid variables. And what she found was that there was a relationship between the period, how long they took to pulsate, whether that being very long or very short, here going down to just a few days, here going out toward pushing towards 100 days, and the luminosity. Because really one of the keys in determining distances is finding the luminosity of something. If you find out how bright it is, how bright it's really supposed to be, that's its luminosity. If you know how bright it appears to be, that's easy to measure, that's just the apparent brightness. That's real easy to get. So once you get that, if you know the luminosity and you know the apparent brightness, you can figure out the distance. And we looked at that a little bit in lab last time. And actually the exercise I have you doing today after lecture is another, is something similar to what we did the last time in terms of estimating some of these distances without actually calculating them. But we can tell then if we just measure it. Now the, that, that period is easy to measure. All you have to do is be able, as long as you can see the star, you can watch its brightness change and you can figure out whether it takes five days, 10 days, 30 days and where it fits on this scale. And that gives you a pretty rough idea that if it's five days, you know that the luminosity is, what, uh, 700-ish something, several hundred times the luminosity of the sun. So you know it's true brightness. You measure how bright it appears to be, calculation you can do, then give you the distance. 
So easy thing to measure because all you have to do is be able to see the star. Not like parallax where you've got to watch for that little tiny shift. Right, you're looking for that teeny tiny shift, a fraction of an arc second. Here as long as the star is visible, you can use this to determine the luminosity and therefore the distance. So this was a really important thing discovered, again, not just a little over 100 years ago. And this is what helped us to be able to understand distances to, other, to, distances to even more distant objects. So how does it work? Well, again, as I said, the period is very easy to measure. So you measure the period just by observing the light curve. You observe how it varies. Does it take five days? Does it take 10 days? Does it take 20 days? So over the period of a few months, you can figure out the period very accurately. So that's easy to do. Doesn't require anything more than just a regular telescope measuring the brightness of the stars. We use the relationship that Henrietta Leavitt came up with to tell us what the luminosity is. So we know how bright it is, how bright it should be, what its true brightness is. If we were to put it at that standard distance, we know how bright it should be. Parent brightness, that's easy to measure. How bright does it appear to be? And use those two, we can go through and use the inverse square law of brightness and you can actually figure out how far away it is. The difficulty is you need one thing first. You have to be able to calibrate this. You have to know how bright, you have to know the intrinsic brightness of one of the Cepheids to be able to figure out where, how that curve fits. Once you can figure out one Cepheid, then, the pair, then this works. But you have to know how bright one of them really is first. That's, what's cal that's what calibration means. We need to figure out the distance to one of these by some other method. And that would be parallax. The only difficulty is there weren't any early on that were close enough to have a measurable parallax. Remember, we've only jumped recently where we can get big parts of the galaxy measured for parallax. So you had to use other methods, another one we'll talk about in the next set, to be able to calibrate. This is one of the big problems with distances. There's not just one way to determine distances. I can't just say parallax works and we can determine parallax to the planets and to the stars and to the galaxies and out to the edge of the universe. Parallax only works in one section. Variable stars works in one distance range. Right? From where the nearest variables happen to be out until they're just too faint to be able to be detected. So we can't go any further than that. If we get far enough away, even a bright star like one of these is going to be invisible to us, even with a powerful telescope. So it works for that range. There are others in between. And doing that means that any errors that we make in calculating the parallax, and there's always errors, measurement errors are a natural part of science. So any little errors you make in parallax build into the next set because you're using parallax to, to calibrate this set. Then you use that set to calibrate the variable stars. And we're going to go beyond this later on. What do you do beyond this? You've got to find something else to measure distances later. It's like a ladder. You're building on each step, but each step has a little bit of error, so the next step has, has that error plus its own, so it's more, less accurate. And the next one, and the next one, each one builds on those layers before it. And that's one of the problems with really trying to determine distances. So you could look up distances to a star and you might find out that it's you know, 3,000 light years away plus or minus 300. 
That's a pretty big error, right? I mean, if you want to try to figure distances out here on Earth, you know, 10% error would be horrible. For astronomy, that's great. Getting it to within 10%. So it's between 2,700 light years and 3,300 light years. That's about how accurately we can do some of these. So when you get further out, you know, it might be millions of light years plus or minus a few hundred thousand light years. So the errors get large because everything is built on the previous steps. As we get parallax measured more accurately, that gives us a better calibration for the next steps. So it, it is constantly improving, but it's just when you hear something is so many light years away, you have to consider that in some cases that error can get up. When you get out to the edges, you can get up to 40-50% error. Just not knowing it that accurately because of all the errors that have built into it. Now one of the important things with this was in the 1920s, uh, Edwin Hubble, recognized the name from the Hubble Space Telescope that was named after him, uh, and we'll come back and talk with him again. He did a number, he came up with a number of uh, big discoveries in the 1920s. But what he was able to do was take images of the Andromeda Galaxy and identify Cepheid variables there. So he identified them as Cepheids. All of a sudden we had the thing calibrated to at least some extent. Now we could figure out distances. We could figure out how far away the Andromeda galaxy was. Turns out it's about two and a half million light years. At the time, less than a hundred years ago, we didn't know. There was a big debate among astronomers at the time as to whether galaxies like the Andromeda, we call it a spiral galaxy today, back then they were called spiral nebulae. It was not known whether they were part of our galaxy and nebulae like other nebulae, other gas clouds, or if they were actually island universes, other galaxies like ours. Hubble was the one who put that to rest by identifying the Cepheid variables within the galaxy, within the Andromeda galaxy and saying, hey, it is. It's actually outside the bounds of our galaxy and well outside the bounds by being able to identify those. But it's been less than 100 years since we've even known or been able to prove that other galaxies existed. There was a group of astronomers that believed it. There was a group of astronomers that argued that they were part of our own galaxy at the time. So until Hubble came up with this evidence, it was a big question. Now Cepheids aren't the only type of variable star. We also have some others. And our, our Lyrae stars are uh, similar to Cepheids in many ways. These have very short periods though. Cepheids go down here to about the three, two, one day range. Um, our, our Lyrae stars are all very close to about half a day. So they're pulsating really quickly. And these are stars. They're getting bigger, they're getting smaller. So they're pulsating really fast in terms of changing their brightness. The nice thing with the, our, our Lyrae stars is that they're all in a little bunch here. Cepheids are spread out. You can have one that pulsates with a period of two days. You can have one that's out there at 90 days. So there's a big range and that tells you the luminosity. The RR Lyrae's are all bunched up, meaning that they all have very close to the same period and they all have very close to the same luminosity. Nice thing about that is that once you identify one, you don't have to even go through the period luminosity relationship, right? Figure out the period and use that to get the luminosity. If you're using an RR Lyrae star, all you have to do, once you identify it, is say they're all about the same. They're all very close to being the same, uh, same period. So 
Once you figure out it's an RLIRA star, we know how bright it is intrinsically once we've calibrated it. And then we can use that to be able to determine distances. These are some of the ways we first mapped how big our galaxy was. Our Lyrae stars in clusters of stars around our galaxy were identified and we could actually map out how big our galaxy was and found out that it was a lot bigger than we had previously thought. Again, we're going back, you know, 100 years now, but we didn't really understand not only that our galaxy was not the whole universe that there were other galaxies out there, but we didn't even understand how big our galaxy was. All right, so finishing up here, um, we talked about a couple types of variable stars. Some of those we'll come back and talk about a little bit later, especially the cataclysmic variables. Those are things like, some of you hear novae, supernovae. Those are examples of cataclysmic variables, some massive explosion going on. The ones we really looked at here were the Cepheids and the RR Lyrae stars. These are what we called intrinsic variables. They are changing in brightness intrinsically themselves. The star is actually physically changing. It's changing and that's causing its brightness to change. This happens to all stars. All stars will change in brightness slowly over time. The sun will slowly get brighter and brighter and brighter over the next five billion years. But not with this kind of regularity. These are stars that are actually in a slightly unstable region of their lives and they are actually pulsating. But they're the ones that are really important for allowing us to determine galactic distances and those to the very nearest galaxies. Andromeda galaxy, one of the closest by. They won't help us when we're looking out towards the edge of the universe. All right, question on variables. All right, well the other method that we use kind of in between these is using the HR diagram to determine a distance. If you remember, what, some of the things we plot on the HR diagram, we had spectral class, we had temperature, we had color index, that's one item. But the other thing we plotted was the luminosity. So once we get this calibrated, knowing where a star falls on this axis, knowing what spectral class it is, tells you what the luminosity is. So just like using the period luminosity relationship for a Cepheid, you identify something easy to find, period. Easy to watch it change in brightness. Well, as long as you can see the star and get a spectrum of it, if there's enough light to be able to split it into a spectrum, you can then determine the spectral class. Spectral class goes up to the main sequence here, say, and then tells you what its luminosity is. You know the luminosity, you know the uh, apparent magnitude, you can then find the distance. The difficulty with this is that the main sequence isn't the only grouping on the HR diagram. So if we measure a star to be you know, a K-type star, it could be a main sequence star with this luminosity a little less than the sun. It could be a giant star. Same, same temperature, the spectrum would look the same with something a thousand times the brightness of the sun or it could be a supergiant star with something like a hundred thousand times the brightness of the sun. As you might think, if you, how bright you think it is is going to affect its distance. If you think it's really, really bright, you're going to estimate its distance to be a lot further away because that's why it looks so faint. It's a really bright star but it's got to be very far away to look that brightness. 
So that can cause you to get errors in terms of determining this. So when you classify a star, just saying that it is a K-type star or a G-type star isn't enough. We actually have to classify the luminosity class that I talked about last time. And I told you there were five. The three that are important are the three I give you here. There is luminosity class five, which is the main sequence stars. That's 90% of them. So your good bet if you're identifying a star would be that it's a main sequence star because you've got a 9 in 10 chance of it being one of those. The giants and the supergiants are relatively rare. Giants are a class 3 and supergiants are a class 1. So as an example there, the sun is actually classified not just as a G star. We subdivide that to get more accuracy. It's actually G2. And it's a G2 Roman numeral uh, V for 5. So G2 class 5 star. That then tells you exactly where it fits not only here, but it tells you which of these lines it would fit on. Where would it be on the HR diagram? Is it a main sequence star? Is it a giant or is it a supergiant? There are also stars that are much like the sun. G2, same temperature. But they're a class 3. They're many times brighter. They're a much bigger and brighter star. As long as we can determine that, then we can say that giant star is this luminosity and now I can figure out its distance. So the whole key with determining distances is figuring out the luminosity, how bright something really is. And we want to use something that's easy to observe. Remember the parallax we looked at last time. Parallax is tough. It's a tiny, tiny angle for all these stars. You're measuring tiny fractions of an arc second. These ones, these things are easier to measure. I can classify the stars, measure their, uh, measure their spectra, and determine what type of star they are. That's not that bad. I can measure the uh, period of a Cepheid variable. That's something that's very easy to observe. So those make it a lot easier, but again, both of these build on, they have to be calibrated. So you have to actually figure out what luminosity applies at different places on the main sequence. So you would have to be able to determine distances to many of these based on, uh, based on their parallax. So this is a little easier to do. We can find many regular stars that are nearby and we can actually measure parallax to them so we can get some kind of calibration. And then say this is where the main sequence fits in terms of luminosity. Once you do that, all you have to do is classify the star and you can get its luminosity. It's another way to be able to determine that luminosity which you can then use with the, how bright it appears to be to figure out the distance. Okay. So this is what we call a spectroscopic parallax which has nothing to do with parallax even though we call it spectroscopic parallax. It's a spectroscopic method of determining distances, which is how it got the name parallax, as parallax being a way to determine distance. But it has nothing to do with the shifting. You don't have to observe six months apart when the Earth is at different points in its orbit. All you have to do is observe the star itself. So the only thing it has in common is that it is used to determine distances. And essentially, just summarizing what I've gone over on the previous slide there, Measure the spectral class, determine this part of the, of the spectral class, determine this portion as well, which, uh, what luminosity class is it, 
Is it a dwarf star? Is it a giant star? Is it a supergiant star? Then you figure out what the luminosity is. You know the luminosity. You can go back through the inverse square law of brightness. And there's a way to calculate exactly what it is. So if you determine the luminosity, you know the apparent brightness, you can then calculate the distances. So I don't want you to need to be able to know how to do that, but I want you to know that it can be done. That there, there are ways, once we do this, we figure this out, we get the brightness, once we know how bright, how luminous it really is, we can determine the distances. And that's what's really important. And again, the only big issue is that it needs to be calibrated. We need stars of known distance, which are pretty easy. Because we know lots of these stars, especially down here, are known very well. So we can match those. We can, they're relatively close. We can measure distances to them. Once we get everything calibrated, then things like the Cepheid variables, which would be up in the giant, supergiant range, once, the, once, the whole, once this is calibrated, we can use these distances to calibrate the Cepheids. Find out where they occur on here and use them to measure distances even further out. So our first step is parallax. That does the nearest stars. Then we jump to spectroscopic parallax, which will get you out a little bit further. But you need those really bright stars up here, which is where things like the Cepheids are, to be able to see things even in the nearest galaxies. So you need those nearby galaxies to even get the distances to the nearest galaxies. So as I said, these are the first few steps, first few rungs in the cosmic distance ladder as ways of being able to determine distance. None of the measurements work for everything. We can't use parallax out to the edge of the universe. We have to have other methods. In fact, methods that go well beyond what I've given you today. So some stars are close enough to give us parallax. Some stars, we can use spectroscopic parallax. As long as we can see the star, we can see, identify it as an individual star. That's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Most galaxies, except for nearby ones, we can't see the individual stars. We see the blurred out light of all the stars, but we can't see the individual stars. So this works, again, for stars within our galaxy. As long as we can identify the star and get enough light to take a spectrum of it. We fit it on the HR diagram and get distance. That we can use to calibrate the Cepheids or our Lyrae stars. So we have a matter of what we call direct and indirect methods. Direct methods are things like parallax. That is a direct measurement of the distance. Bless you. Direct measurement of the distance. Radar would be another one. Remember, that only worked within our solar system in the nearby portion of our solar system. That's a direct way of getting the distance. Everything else is indirect. You determine the luminosity, you determine the brightness, and you use that to then be able to determine the distances. So everything else is an indirect methods. So essentially what we do is you start off with parallax, which is the direct method to determine distances to stars. That overlaps with the spectroscopic parallax region and you can use that in between section where they overlap to calibrate, to figure out what the, how the spectroscopic parallax will work. Then you use that to calibrate the variable stars. And then we'll see later, you use the variable stars to calibrate other distance measurements, other ways of determining the distance. So kind of summarizing that here and some of the problems is that all of these have errors associated with them. So if you remember, if we measure a star to be at 100 light years, 
with an error of 10%. Again, that's not a really a bad measurement for these. That means it's somewhere between 90 and 110 light years away. But each of these builds up as we go through, as we get further and further away. Trigonometric parallax works from as close as four light years, because that's where the nearest star is, out with the Gaia mission that we talked about last time, out to about 30,000 light years. It's about a third the diameter of our galaxy, a very small amount. So that's about a third of the diameter of our galaxy. So it helps with our galaxy, but it's not really a great way to get the entire galaxy. Our, our Lyrae stars get out to about 300,000 light years. Remember, they're the fainter ones down there, so not very far. They're not going to help us much outside of our own galaxy. A few nearby small galaxies, but nothing very far away. Uh, HR diagram will get you out to one, one little over a million light years. Cepheids are some of the bigger, brighter stars that exist. We can get out to 60 million light years. So boy, that's really getting out there, but that's still just the beginnings of the universe. 60 million light years, we'll be talking about things that are many billions of light years. So 10, 100 times further away than, the, than what we can do with the brightest Cepheids. So we need other methods. You know, this is not getting us, this is not even getting us, you know, what, one one-hundredth of the way to the edge of the universe. Maybe one two-hundredth of the way to the edge of the universe. So get an idea of how big these various uh, things are. All right. So that's what the Cepheids are able to, to get us. So finishing up here, uh, we can use the HR diagram to determine luminosities, and that gives us the distances. So figure out what the luminosity is, that gives you the distance. In order to do this, we need the spectral, uh, spectral class and the luminosity class of various stars to be able to get distances. That's the spectroscopic parallax. And then I really wanted to emphasize, and we'll come back to the cosmic distance ladder when we, get, when we start talking about galaxies. We won't need it now that we're talking about stars for the next few lectures. We won't be quite as bad. But when we start getting out to galaxies, we're going to need new ways to be able to determine distances. There's lots of galaxies within 60 million light years. But there's far more beyond that. Far, far more. We're only looking at a tiny fraction of the universe there. All right, questions? What are we doing time-wise? Okay. All right, otherwise, let me see. Did I put it up here? Otherwise, I was going to get a, did I load up 20? I'm going to go ahead and just get the, I'm not going to go through the whole first section of 20 probably, but I'm going to go ahead and get a start on it since we have two to get through and I've got a, Give you about, about 10 minutes here to go ahead and get started on these, and then we'll go ahead and give you the lab for the rest of the time. So, what we're going to work on really the next three chapters are about the lives of the stars. Chapters 20, 21, and 22 tell us about the life of a star up till, up till just before the death throes kick in. The next chapters kick in what happens as the star really dies but as it's at, after the star has died, what's, what's left over and the interesting things that are left forward behind. So 17 through 19 that we just went through were some of the basic background information. 20 and 21 will lead into star formation. How do stars form in the first place? And then 22 is really about the lives of the stars. How stars go through their lives and that. So that's what we'll be looking at over this, this coming two weeks. But the interstellar medium is kind of where we start. So what is the interstellar medium? 
Well, interstellar medium is anything we find between the stars. It's made up of a couple of different things. It is made up of gas and dust. Vast majority of it is gas. 99% of it, the interstellar medium is all gas. Most of that, 90% plus, is all hydrogen. So most of the material in the interstellar medium is hydrogen gas. However, the other stuff is things that are important too, even though they're smaller percentages. Interstellar dust may only be 1% of the interstellar material, but it can block out material behind it. And in fact, what you see here is an example of a nebula. So this is a glowing cloud of gas. The bright portion here is actually a gas cloud that's being excited to glow. But all of those dark regions in between it are actually dust. So these are regions of denser dust particles. Now, talk about densities out in space. They're nothing like densities here. The typical density of the interstellar medium, even in these denser areas, is about one atom per cubic centimeter. So imagine a little cubic centimeter, you know, sugar cube, dice, a die, one atom in that. On Earth, our atmosphere has 10 to the 19th, the one followed by 19 zeros atoms in each little, you know, each little centimeter of the atmosphere right here has that many atoms in it. So even though it's, sometimes I'll say its density is high, it might have you know, 10 atoms per cubic centimeter. It's nowhere near the densities that we're used to here on Earth. However, when you spread things out over light years, even having one dust particle here, and then a few meters away, another dust particle, and another one, and another one. And you do that over light years, you form a wall. You can completely block out the light from behind it. So that dust, even though it's not very dense by any standards that we have here on Earth, is now spread out instead of just you know, over a few, few meters, as it would be in the, in the room. Wouldn't be enough to block out light. But random particles spread out over larger distances can block out light from behind it. So even though these regions are dark, it doesn't mean there's nothing there. It means there's more material there. And these are what we're going to find as regions where stars are actually forming. So within some of these denser knots, you will get things that actually get up to even higher densities. But for the most part, most of what we see out in space is incredibly low in terms of density. So we want to look at each of these uh, briefly. The interstellar gas. This is an example of the Orion Nebula. So Orion Nebula, very prominent ne nebula in Orion. You actually can see it with your naked eye. It won't look anything like this. It'll look like a little spot. It actually looks like a star in Orion. Um, if you're familiar with Orion, you've got four stars that outline the body, but the three in the belt are usually what stands out. There's also a sword hanging down from the belt, and the middle star in the sword is actually this whole nebula. Uh, you can actually take an image. If you take an image with a camera that's focused on Orion and tracking Orion, you can actually see it with just a camera if you take a long enough exposure. So what we see is the interstellar gas can appear in a variety of ways. Most of it, the vast majority, is completely invisible. We can see gas in what we call H2 regions. Those are hydrogen regions where the, old, the, the hydrogen has been ionized. H2 simply means it's H1 would be neutral hydrogen with one electron. H2 is with one electron removed. So when you do that and those electrons recombine with hydrogen, 
it gives off emission lines. Right? Going way back to chapter 5, chapter 6, whichever one it was here, uh, that talked about the spectra. So if we took a spectrum of this, we would get very specific bright lines. And hydrogen would be one of them. Any other elements that make it up would also be there. So ultraviolet light from these stars, and in fact from very four very hot stars right at the center of it, are what ionize, rip the electrons off all of these atoms and cause them to glow. You would see other elements. You could see things like sulfur. You could see things like oxygen in this as well. So there's all sorts of other elements there as well. But again, remember, hydrogen makes up 90% of everything in the universe. These kind of things, while they're pretty, we see lots of pretty pictures of them, are a small fraction of the uh, hydrogen gas in the universe. They're only a small portion. Most of the hydrogen gas isn't near a hot star, so it's invisible. It's just plain, clear hydrogen gas, and we can't see it. So even though we see these, and you'll see lots of pictures of nebulae, uh, we've probably seen a couple of them in our pictures uh, at the beginning of class. But these are only the rare, these are the rare parts where it actually causes to glow. Most of them, if you took a picture of it, you wouldn't see anything. Because hydrogen gas, like oxygen and nitrogen, are completely transparent. Right? We can see through them. So hydrogen gas is exactly the same. So interstellar gas is one part of the interstellar medium. And how we can find it, how can we find the rest of it? So how can we find this neutral hydrogen if it's not giving off any kind of light? Well, it does a couple things. There actually are two things that it will do. One, first of all, it does not emit visible light. So even if you have this big hydrogen cloud, you can look right through it and you can see everything behind it. Not like the dust, you can see things right behind it. But we, when a starlight passes through that cloud, the hydrogen will absorb. It'll absorb those specific wavelengths that it likes. So when you look at the star, it will get some absorption lines, but you'll get another set of absorption lines that will come from the material going through the cloud. So even if, thing, if things are moving, for example, remember the cloud may be moving, the star may be moving, they're not moving at the same speeds relative to each other or relative to us, so they're going to be Doppler shifted. So you will get one hydrogen line here, but you'll get another hydrogen line a little further away. And that's telling you, making you a way to measure the hydrogen, even though it's invisible. Even though you can't see that cloud, you know that it had to be there because it's absorbing those wavelengths. So when light from a star passes through a cloud, that's one way that we can determine this hydrogen gas is out there. We can actually make some measurements. And you can use that to get some statistical estimates of how much there is in the galaxy. The other way we can observe it is to directly look at it. It doesn't give off any visible light, but remember, visible light's only that tiny portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. There's all those other portions. It's very low energy, so it doesn't give off very high energy waves, but it does give off low energy waves. And it gives off radio waves. And in fact, one that's very prominent is what is called the 21 centimeter emission of hydrogen. 21 centimeters is, you know, about that wavelength about like that or so. About 20, about about what? About 10 inches in size. So long wavelength, but something that we can measure very easily with a radio telescope. Most lines that we look at, when we looked at the hydrogen lines, remember it was jumping between energy levels. The electron would jump 
between higher or lower energy levels. Well, this is too small for that. This is another type that occurs. And this is what we call a spin-flip transition. Because when you have an atom, hydrogen atom, you have a proton and you have an electron. They, be, they all both have a spin. So they can either spin, they can spin up, they can have an up spin or a down spin. You can have two, so you have two situations. You can either have them in opposite spins, one, one up, one down, right? Or you can have both up or both down. Both, both in the same direction or in opposite directions. Think of it that way. So what happens is there's a lowest energy state when the spins are opposite. That's where, the, well, that's where it wants to be. But as these, hydrogen, these gas atoms bump against each other, it doesn't take much energy to flip it. So you flip them so that they're in the same direction. They don't like that. They flip back. And that gives off, has to give off an energy. When we do that, when we excite hydrogen gas, it gives off red light or blue light, depending on which transition is going on. When you get this transition, it's very, very low energy. It only gives off a very long wavelength radio wave. But there's so much hydrogen out there that we can detect all of that. So that we can detect, we can use this to map the hydrogen gas in the galaxy. This doesn't require things like stars going through it. It doesn't require bright stars illuminating it. It doesn't require any of that. This is just the hydrogen itself giving off the light. Let me see how much more. I'm going to leave those. I've still got a couple more things on gas and I don't want to go too far. But I wanted to get through at least that much. Give us a little start into things uh, for next week. And then I'll pick up on Tuesday. Uh, we'll finish up 20 and get started on 21. Uh, 21 is actually star formation, but it also talks about planetary formation. So we get to talk about uh, exoplanets and planets in the universe too and what we've been able to discover there. So it's a little more interesting there. And then we'll actually, the following week, we'll pick up on 22, which talks about uh, the galaxy, uh, stars, uh, how stars change their li- in their lives. Questions? Alrighty.